With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're listening to Bedroom Beethoven's, where notable music makers break down stories accompanied by songs and melodies documenting growth through their 10,000 hour journey. And me? Well, my name is Cello, your host. <laughs> Welcome everybody to episode 125 of the Bedroom Beethoven's podcast. My guest this week is my name is Daedalus. Uh, IRL. Um, if you meet me on the street, it's Alfred Darlington. Um, but whatever, whatever fits your fancy, I'm, I'm happy with almost any terminology and I've been a music producer and performer for the past 20 plus years uh, from Los Angeles, California. Also, I'm just so grateful for the the people that came out of LA's beat scene that I had a chance to share stages, studio, and um, just friendships with. I feel really part of my peers, even if I'm a, a tad bit older and I have some of that perspective, but everyone from the Flylos and Toki Monsters, Shlomos, yeah, there's such a litany of artists and artistry that I'm so happy to, to yeah, like be part of, be part of that wave. An all-encompassing conversation with my esteemed guest of the hour, Daedalus, your musical hero of the L.A. beat scene, in which we sit down and talk on the 20th anniversary of Hers is Greater Than, like, to the date. That wasn't planned, actually, but a very serendipitous moment, because everything we talk about is the end result of what wands won't break. Launching the 23-track LP in a year where not many people were dancing, but a year later, physical mediums are out, and people are snatching them up as they should, because it's incredible. But we don't stop there. New music is on the way, and Daedalus is indeed conjuring their next full-length album. But before we do, let me tell you about myself and what I do and the various ways you can support me. If you like this show, if you like this episode, tell a friend. Word of mouth is just about the best way I can hope to grow the show, and if you visit the website, bedroombeethovens.com, it's the main website. It spiderwebs into all the social channels a place that you can buy merch and donate to patreon.com slash bedroom Beethoven's to financially support an artist through these crashing waves of life's ups and downs. But this week is an up, not a down, because Daedalus is here. What Wands Won't Break follows their previous LP for Brain Feeder, The Bitter Enders, which served as a bookend to the tranquil and exotic worlds created for Flying Lotus's imprint, as I'm certain that Flying Lotus will be dedicating much of his life to the world of anime for this foreseeable future. But let's get the show started. 
Be blessed, everyone. Stay safe out there. Well, now, Discogs has Hers is Greater Than as being released on June 1st, 2001. So if that's accurate, we are indeed speaking on the 20th anniversary oh, wow. of that body of work. That's incredible. I didn't realize that that was exactly that age. I should probably <laughs> yell and scream about that. It's, it's, it's a very misfit record. It was really kind of my first, but it was on a label that did CDRs, like would print out CDRs and mail them through arcane uh, magazines that you would kind of fold to the back of, you know, it was like very, very independent distribution in an era where the kind of major way that um, the throttle that major labels had over the record stores was still complete. And so in 2001 to have some independent release out meant, you know, you pretty much mailed stamps to have a return envelope and uh, some money involved. And then suddenly, you know, you got back this, this jewel case CDR and that was hers is greater than to a T. Wow. I mean, 20 years ago doesn't seem like that long ago, but you you might as well have been describing Betamax, it seems so long ago. <laughs> and for those of you who don't know what Betamax are, it was beaten by VHS. And those of you who don't know who VHS is, it was beaten out by DVD. And those of you who don't know what DVD are, well, it's basically streaming, but really <laughs> slow and very physical. <laughs> now, you, you went in, in the introductions, you said that your name was Alfred Darlington. And I, mm-hmm. I, I thought that was interesting, or maybe it's not, but I know your parents <laughs> used hyphenated last names and you took the name yeah. of your then wife and your middle name, correct me if I'm wrong, was Alva as in Thomas Alva, but not anymore, right? Absolutely. Yeah. You've done well, sort of. So I didn't actually take on the name of my, my then wife. We, we determined a new name together. We, we picked up where neither of us had left off and decided to form something irrationally kind of plucked from air, which suited us at the time. We were forging new identities. Having a hyphenated last name, those of you out there might have a similar heartache. I, I am one part of my my father, one part of my mother. The, the total amalgamation of both names together becomes a mouthful. And also equally as divorce happens and life changes, it's nice to be able to plot our own course, maybe potentially. So that new last name has survived separation from my uh, my then wife and also just kind of made these new waves, especially as I've had a newborn. It's like, well, what is what is their, their name supposed to be? And Darlington still fits, but I, you know, maybe they'll plot their own course and I'll be equally happy with that, whatever they choose. I love that because it's not a name that, hin- that you know, is hinders on your partner. It's, it, it can evolve as your life mm-hmm. evolves and, you know, the naming conventions in a traditional matter, you don't adhere to. I know custom dictates that women keep their surnames in Spanish-speaking countries like Spain and Chile. Uh, so I think that's pretty remarkable. Well, and we come from this artist alias, right? We come from this land of we pluck a name from air and it kind of is both a non sequitur. It doesn't have to necessarily mean anything. And then also it can be everything. You, you know, I know for myself, my gnome de plume, my Daedalus identity has given me so much inspiration because for me it's not so much who i am it's much more of an aspiration of what i'd like to become and i would hope that any name that you know dj or otherwise chooses can be can be like that can be aspirational can kind of elucidate our choices make something more out of especially a situation where you're on a stage be it the stage of social media or an actual stage and and you have to assume something maybe more than your humble origin story might might dictate. And so why not do the same thing with our names 
outside of those ranges. Well, I got to say the names are great. I think Clementine is a great name. Thank I you. particularly like Jane because I named my daughter Ophelia Jane. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Jane is my now partner, mother of my, my child, and so much more in terms of an artistic collaborator. So I'm really thrilled that we're forging this new life out here in Providence, Rhode Island, which is so far from Los Angeles, so far from previous um, previous life, but very much kind of feels like we're doing the opposite thing rather than going west to find a new life. We've gone east and it's been really good for us in this way. Yeah. I love that. I love that. I, I, and I know there's no Ophelia in Greek mythology, but the name is derived from Greek. It was a it was in a 15th century poem called Arcadia, and Shakespeare actually borrowed it for ah, Hamlet. Makes all the sense. So her, her name means to aid, and my wife mm. is a nurse. It just seems that's beautiful. Big. I love that. But speaking of naming conventions, Daedalus is a fascinating character and one whose characteristics mirror your own as a musician. He's an architect. He's an, he has an inventor's spirit. He's clever, but his personal life was very dramatic. You know, Icarus mm-hmm. died. He flung Talos to his death. His sister killed herself. He took her son. He was imprisoned. And it begs me to ask the question that to be a genius on that level, maybe you need a little bit of chaos to kind of offset that. I I mean, I think I can't speak for for genius or those who are. I mean, I only can say again that I, I aspire towards great things. But I do think, especially for music, it takes a certain amount of fractionalness. It takes a certain amount of discordance and dissonance to make the harmonious that appears. If we're talking about, not to get too nerdy, but if we're talking about cadential movement, you have to stray from what is essentially the tonic or home to then feel recovered and renewed and returned. And in the same way, if we don't let our music become marred, then we have this kind of ambient, pap, lo-fi, non-listening kind of music. And there's no problem to that. I think there's beautiful in its own art forms. But for myself, I love it when that schism, that kind of chasm that opens up underneath our feet yields just places that you never thought you could go with your ears. And that's totally why I got involved in music in the first place. I was upended by LA's radio. I was buffeted by DJ sets and kind of burgeoning electronic music culture, hip hop. And these things so impacted me, not to mention jazz and classical music, which was like my fundamental background. How could I not want to give some of that back? But giving that back means, you know, setting the world a bit on fire or at least trying to model myself after what was happening with kind of composers like Shostakovich or Berlioz or Mingus or Coltrane. These people played such a role in my life, even though they're not any near way collaborators. I feel so kind of like still trying to like walk in their, you know, very sizable footsteps to some degree. What, what about the sizable footsteps outside of music? You know, I think a very intimidating figure would be your mother. Her being the her being the dean of fine arts, did that have anything to do with you swaying to enroll at USC? Yeah, no, it had everything to do with that. I really don't think I would have been able to uh, had USC come into my crosshairs had it not been for their inspiration. Um, I only applied to one school, and that was out of a kind of a resignation that music doesn't necessarily live in institutions. I had already kind of learned that. So when I was in high school, I was in a jazz group with um, some notables. Now, they may not be quick to to your ears, but people like Karis Martin, Ben Wendell, 
and then and then others. But Terrace Martin and Ben Wendell have both gone on to fantastic careers in the music industry. And I'm very lucky to have collaborated with both of them subsequently. But at the time, we were all just know-nothing jazzers, just kind of playing this music that wasn't necessarily part of our tradition. Terrace being a little different, coming from a family of musicians, and, and Ben maybe too, to a degree, but much more opera than otherwise. But I was not from a musical ilk, my mother being a talented painter and an educator, but n- not that person necessarily. Um, and and so kind of seeing how this music could happen, but I not, didn't know how it would necessarily fit into institutional thought. And, you know, fast forward 20 years, I'm out teaching at the Berkeley College of Music, which feels a little bit like betraying my my previous self, but also very grateful for that time at USC to kind of have inspired me. Seeing what was possible being a dedicated artist and making a life in art was the greatest gift my mother gave me because they sacrificed a lot to make my life possible, for sure, in terms of their own artistic practice, putting that aside to be a mother. And that is resonating with me a lot right now really it's a heavy burden for anyone um, to be a parent to kind of think about the needs of others before the needs of them, their own themselves and sometimes the artistic journey is very self-centered it's very egotistical in that way that it requires you know the art requires you to have some deep introspection which a lot of navel gazing kind of tends to associate with that your parents met in college correct I believe so. Uh, it must have been maybe not their first college experience. Maybe it was graduate school. But you know, if they if they met in school and then you you met your significant other in high school and in college, and they teach and you teach and they're creative and you're creative, I see a pattern. Well, I mean, I, I will say, whereas their pattern kept them kept them entangled for a long period of time, um, my my sway where I did meet my my former um, sweetheart in in uh, high school, which was remarkable but maybe also destined us to not stay as close in the end as possible part of the thing of their practice didn't take them on the road even though we had projects that did tour a little bit and then they subsequently stayed as a homebody and i i was kind of rootless and doing the very very touring life for a period of time and probably that contributed to our our eventual parting but also it's on such good terms they're um still a fantastically creative person having gone on to work with Flying Lotus and Cut Chemist and others, um, and I really do uh, think that their 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 like subsequent artistic incarnations have been have been marvelous. I'm happy that the kind of relationships that I had subsequently, and especially the one that's culminated into this one with Jane, has been so like has borne different fruit, and uh, you know the maturity that's come along with that has kind of given me some pause and presence, and ref- you know just kind of a wherewithal that makes it so that this feels like the good choices now uh, have all been paid for with a lot of perhaps bad choices then, but in the best way, you know, the life in the kind of life way. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Totally. It was a journey for sure. And your father, I don't want to discount him either. He worked in the the psychology department. Yeah. He he, he was at UCLA for a period of time before UCLA. He, as an experimental psychologist, did work for the government, but also um, studied paraphrase theory at a time when that was kind of an unsolved field, which at some point became kind of solved for their purposes, at least for their area of expertise. And so they they exited that area and went on to teach at UCLA for a period of time, going into the Nome de Plume doctor memory, which is kind of weird, but that was just how they were known as by their students, which is kind of fun and um yeah, it's they didn't keep 
their professional or scientific life going for such a long time, but always had an artistic lean, was a great reader, a voracious reader um, up until more recently, and just in general, an inspiring force. I don't know where parents play a role in your life. I don't know where family sits exactly for yourself. For me, I I think that um, the role of it's, it's really important to me that there was some amount of support that went on, but there was also a strange amount of freedom in my life. I grew up in Santa Monica, which is now known for being like a Silicon beach, like one of these many areas to where tech lives and kind of has this bourgeoisie kind of feel. But when I was growing up there, it really did feel like Dogtown, which has been much storied. This is, this is like eighties Santa Monica uh, the the birthplace of kind of modern skateboarding. And I probably like clockwork every about six months, I would get jumped by some sort of gang or association or whatever you wanted to call it um, because it was rough around the edges. And um, without joining necessarily one of the crews, be it some of the beach kind of bums or skate punks or whatever the thing is, you would kind of stick out. And so I got these long lenses towards what, these people would do how they operated and, you know, you get occasionally stepped on for it, but that independence, that unfettered ability to, to kind of flit around that my parents afforded me, maybe because of my perceived gender at the time, being a boy bodied kid and kind of willing to kind of tough it out. Even if I came back with a black eye or kind of a subsequent bruise or something, but it really gave me some insight into just this human condition. And you know, what, what could a family do other than just give you that gift of, kind of figuring it out, which maybe didn't always feel so sweet, but it was a, you know, when I'm looking back, it's, it's, it's a lot. I don't know if I would want to give this to my kid now. I don't know how I feel about that. Providence being a little rough around the edges in its own way. Um, but yeah, I, I do appreciate my family for that. Yeah. You touched, you, you came to the same conclusion that I came is mm. your, your dad wanted to advance the science of cognition through psychology and science. So that puts him in a very, very small percentage of distinguished researchers. So what we have now is the queen of right brains, your mother, and the man who is king of the left brains. And you have a fork in the road where a brilliant analytical mind and an accomplished artistic mind have kids. And you are like the Deacon Frost and Blade. You have the characteristics of a vampire, <laughs> but you can walk in sunlight. You're now a polymath by birth. And to test that theory even further, you, Daedalus, creative musical outlier, your sister has a PhD in art history. She's a curator of 18th century art. She's a professor yeah. as well as a historian. You guys were drawn to the arts. Your lives were tethered to the arts, communication, theory, and sound the, the minute you were born almost. And maybe in... Santa Monica or Beverly Hills, maybe it was hard as a teenager for people to accept that. I, I would say that in some ways, the fact that um, my sister became a very visual person and I became a very auditory person is no accident. The fact that my sister became a very analytical person, she was willing to take on the kind of heavy gifts that were given to her in terms of a very keen um, eye and quick intelligence. Went to college a year or two early, was a classics major, ended up being an educator in Hong Kong and now living in the UK. She's kind of maybe walked the path that my parents laid out a little bit more so. Whereas I doing the the right brain thing, potentially if you want to give it into that bifurcated mind kind of sense toward and didn't have necessarily that kind of plotted direction about what is success or what is um, fruition. 
there's something about releasing music, which is both this kind of act of like great ego where you're like, Hey, listen to me, listen to this. I have something to say in a world that is, you know, is already such a tremendous din, such a big amount of noise going on to, for me to say that makes me feel so ridiculous sometimes. Hey, listen to this hour long piece of thing is, is ludicrous. Um, but at the same time doing that and also kind of wandering the world, just trying to find the ears that people on a given night, on a given day that aren't necessarily so addled by whatever intoxicants or distractions that they decide to, to spend it with me on a stage, kind of throwing lightning bolts of whatever loudness I can, can muster um, also feels a bit ridiculous, but I, I appreciate that you, you kind of see it for this, this kind of overall patchwork since, like I mentioned before, none of my family were musicians and I think that afforded me an opportunity to kind of find my niche, you know? have a, a I, maybe you felt this because you've had so many interviews with these tremendous people it's sometimes hard it takes the air out of the room occasionally when people already have ideas or formed um, identities it can make it hard sometimes for you to find yours in the mix of that because the kind of research the development the exploration the journey it's it's either been either it's been entered into and, and kind of gone along with to such a great degree that you have to wonder about the seriousness of your own introspection, or it's been encountered in terms of talent, which is such a mercurial thing. But when you meet it on the road, be it, you know, I, I see it all the time at Berkeley, you, you, these very young but very talented people who are playing and realizing music that's well above their, their maturity, and they've just been gifted this thing. And I didn't necessarily believe in nature pre previously i always believed in nurture i thought that like okay well these people this kind of greatness happens out of a great amount of sacrifice and will and practice right versus the kind of way that some of these people just have ears that have been glued onto their heads that are so incredibly golden they're just every utterance is just drenched in music and so when you see those people who haven't necessarily had to have introspection but they have great ability it's like, well, how do how does this all fit in with that? How do how do I make sense amongst that? And I I love that that's part of my story, maybe more than any kind of synthesis of my family, even though I appreciate that so much. And that's an interesting insight, and I think that isn't incorrect necessarily. I just don't feel it in myself. I feel like I tried really hard and I practiced a lot to fail often, which gave me room to kind of fit a lane that I found both in my family and my life in general. And uh, that has given me more than assuming that it would come along because there was these uh, other chemical ingredients that kind of resulted in me. But that's just my own, my own feelingfulness, <laughs> I guess. Your, your uh, reading is not, is not incorrect at all necessarily. It's just I've come to different conclusions from the same science experiment, I guess. Yeah, my, my reading was is it was just, you know, ultimately your mom combines the challenges of her deanship and years of teaching mm -hmm. as an artist and the cross-fertilization between those roles 
is compelling and probably what makes her so profound. So I was thinking, well, do you find the cross-fertilization between releasing mm-hmm. music and teaching music to give you a similar feeling of privilege? I am starting to see something in it. I'm starting to see what happens when you aren't so egocentric that it's all about your release, your ideas, and you start to sacrifice time to foster talent in others where that gives it back to you threefold, much like any kind of spell or witchcraft. When you do something in earnest and honestly, you don't know what the results of the experiment will be, but you know that if you give it in the right way, it will return to you in terms of energy. It, it doesn't come back in the same way that that shows would. If you have a great show, it will ruin you for life. If you have a great release and the way it's kind of resonant in bodies for years to come, people will still hit me up about a, a single song that might have just kind of carved something in them or you know, a record that does some of that. And it, there's very gratifying feelings to that, but they tend to be bound and limited in those moments versus when you're kind of able to impress on somebody, even just one small eureka, it, it, it blooms in you something greater, I feel like. And I don't know if the same joy would happen to anyone else. This is just for me personally, and it probably is from people like my mother and my father who were educators that kind of instilled in me this kind of this this kind of raft feeling, even though I feel sometimes my mother, for instance, as dean uh, at USC, meant that they were also cajoling others to kind of get along with the belief in what the arts could do, which is beautiful, but that would often mean that they were doing benefit dinners and kind of raising awareness of the arts, which is fundamental and incredible. And I'm so grateful to have gone along some of that journey with pl- people like DubLab or like places like DubLab, um, which is an incredible internet radio station that has persisted as long as I've been releasing music, even longer, I would say, or just about as long. And that has made that mission, you know, very akin to my own, I think partially because of my mother's interest, but it does mean that sometimes my mother hasn't had art, especially producing art as central into their practice. And again, I'm very appreciative of her, of yeah, her sacrifice in that regard. But that being said, teaching, yeah, it, it's, I'm new at it. I'm still getting my sea legs, so to speak. So I'm, I'm grateful for this, this new chapter. And uh, I am curious on talking with other educators about their further experiences, especially ones that came from similar background as myself, where I don't have the greatest amount of academia in my back pocket, but a lot of practical experience in the, in the road. And then to move to teaching has felt like, oh, why have I not, why has this not been on the menu? Like, why haven't been people been talking about this? And I, Maybe because of the pandemic, I have seen a lot of my peers open Patreons, start doing online lessons, try to spread the information. And so I feel so grateful to be part of that same wave, but just maybe a little bit before what others um, have chosen to do, because I think it will resonate. I think it will make us all better producers moving forward once we're post-pandemic, whatever that means and whenever that occurs. Yeah, I think uh, I think that the toughest thing is you have to kind of teach the rules. You know, if you play a modified four string, you can't necessarily teach your kids to take off the A and D strings because that's that's kind of what works for you. You know, I'm fascinated by people who play things mm-hmm. in unusual ways and it works out for them. Uh, one of my favorite songs is Everlong by Foo Fighters and that riff that he plays on that song, mm-hmm. it's a drum riff. He just plays a chord and he's not a trained musician yeah. and he didn't know what that chord was. He can't read music. I just started playing this chord. Now, I'm not a trained musician, so I don't know what that chord is. But that he plays the, the first chord, and he was like, wow, that sounds like Sonic Youth. 
and then he just connected mm-hmm. another chord. So I was kind of playing with it, and then I kind of realized, oh, well, I could do that as well. What's that chord? No clue. And he just messed around. And since he's a drummer, he looks at a guitar like a drum set. He looks at the lower strings like kicks and snares and the higher strings like cymbals. And it's just a kick drum pattern. So the pattern in which I'm strumming, it's almost like a kick drum pattern. Like If Dave Grohl went to Berkeley, he'd be a gifted musician, no doubt. But I think the songs that the Foo Fighters create are large and part of the way Dave visualizes the guitar from the POV of a drummer. And that's actually one of the ways you have to teach is you can't hand people the tools as as a solid set of rules, especially as we uh, are taking that kind of introspective turn to really analyze music theory as a form of white supremacy, for lack of a better term. Uh, Music theory increasingly, especially the Eurocentric model that we've been given, has some fundamental flaws in terms of assumed pitch, uh, the, the lack of timber, largely. We know how to describe the, the pitch of a note. We know how to describe the period by which those notes are played. But in terms of the actual, um, the breath in a measure, the microtonality, and then the kind of ways to which the different instruments will speak, it's just lacking in a huge regard. If you also start to think about the terminology of odd meter and even meter, well, what's odd meter? It's actually just different ways of feeling things that often occur in other cultures. So we've already othered them. We've already put them elsewhere. Um, Berkeley has reckoned with some parts of that and not others. But when you teach students, especially those who are coming from maybe perspectives that aren't enshrined in the canon, like put into the usual parts and pieces, you have to give them room, their own amount of runway to see if they will fly. And again, if they're gifted enough to be amongst these students that are there, they've already been reckoning with these kind of musical thoughts. They've already given a lot of serious attention. They've already dedicated themselves to it. They deserve to have the room to which to develop their own voice. Because oftentimes, if you can have your own voice in this industry, you will find a way or find a route to kind of exist and then eventually succeed. Because usually a lot of this industry is just persistence of vision, just being in the crosshairs long enough to be the one that people shoot for. You know, it's just everything. Yeah. I mean, you can say that Terrace Martin is where he is because he's a good musician, but I think his educators gave him the autonomy to find his own voice. When he was at high school with you, he was first chair in the Allstate Jazz Band Mm -hmm. and got a scholarship to college, but he dropped out to tour with Puff Daddy, which I don't think anybody would have recommended. And then you take someone like... Eric Sati, who mm-hmm. didn't enroll in college until he was 40, and rather than finding validation, his studies seemed to have fueled his hatred for convention. Yeah. So you you could you could teach someone or attempt to teach someone, but they could withdraw. And you could support that withdrawal, not in a negative sense, but maybe they withdrew and you side with relief. Like, well, maybe they made the right choice for themselves. 100%. And that's actually what I did exactly in college. Uh, speaking of, of- one of the ways that educators have impacted my life is I, I studied with a, an artist named John Clayton, this tremendous jazz bass player for three years of my college life. And uh, as an educator, they were incredible as a player. They're awesome. They kind of were a little bit more from the trad world of jazz. They had a big band and, but they were also, if you talk to anybody, they're such a force. And in my third year, I think very presciently, they recognized that I wasn't, my heart wasn't there. 
that my musical ears had had been long living elsewhere. And although I had some aptitude on the bass, I just wasn't going to make those leaps and bounds to give myself to be a featured player, to be someone to reckon with. So he recommended I quit. And I took that recommendation and I ran with it. I ran all the way to electronic music in ways that I should have done much earlier. Um, in terms of when you talk about Eric Satie or Terrace Martin, you're talking about iconoclasts who have literally created their own lanes, created their own musical voices, really innovated in their fields. And I think in some ways we can obviously ghost and mimic their acts and their activities, try to find what it is that makes them special and, and kind of, you know, transcribe their successes and some of their failures and learn from it, especially in the case of Satie, because we have such a body of work that's like, you know, fixed and finite already done in, in the ground. But with Terrace, we obviously would be have a, be challenged because they are still writing their chapters. Usually, with students, again, that kind of idea of support is is fundamental towards finding finding their voice. But it also is sometimes um, not just not applying counterintuitive forces. Information can be a little bit dangerous, especially in terms of music theory. Like I spent years trying to unlearn counterpoint, classical counterpoint, because there's all these rules of like, well, you're not supposed to do parallel fifth movement. You're not supposed to have parallel fourths. You aren't supposed to have leading voices in these certain ways. And of course, it it makes sense if you're writing Gregorian chant and it, you know, sure, I can now, you know, do some things on a piano that, um, or it gives me insight into things that have been written a hundred years ago. But in terms of writing my sound, my music, I had to un like unlearn those muscle memories. So I'm trying to be very prescient oftentimes when I'm presenting information as being fact or opinion or things that people will spend subsequent years undoing just like I've had to. It's challenging though, because we make these assumptions about what sounds good based on our lived in experience. Somebody comes along, not unlike a Foo Fighters and does something differently, partially out of not knowing, but also partially out of being fed a different diet of music and sounds and, and lifestyle and background. We just have to make sure that those um, are both fostered, but also not like leaned into to the point where we have these monoliths of like grunge movements or, or things that kind of, that make it so other voices aren't heard or different voices aren't heard. It's that's a fundamental challenge as an educator is to both like not tip over these people, but also make sure we're not feeding them just the same whitewashed dreck that tends to get bandied about as being good or bad. Um, it's a hard playlist to muster. <laughs> oh, tell me about it. I think I'm learning just by what you're saying that maybe the best artists at all one point are terrible students. And it must seem like a bad joke to come from a family of scholars and readers and if you have a bit of dyslexia coupled with the belief that our minds often conspire against us in creative ways, I am, I imagine the things that you create or the art you enjoy or the books or the music, it's not always a walk in the park. You know, you're, you're a music producer producing a medium that has its own intention. You know what kind of music you like, but maybe on a particular day, you can't create anything that you like. And I, I see your mom's resume. I've seen she's been in over 200 galleries, but I imagine she has enough work to fill a thousand because imagine the rough drafts or the pieces that she hates or the pieces that she doesn't think represents her. And it has to outweigh the show pieces. Well, I, I will just, I will also offer that one of the ways that she's an artist is she does printmaking. And I don't know if you're familiar with that art form, but oftentimes it involves acids and chemicals to take a relief off of a stone or other media to create uh, an impression that then you can add to, but it's oftentimes that initial impression that becomes the work. It's like you can get limited edition litho lithography or these other things. It's not unlike a photographer, but where versus a negative where you can kind of get perfect additions off that same negative, 
with lithography, there's lots of chance that's involved. There's lots of, well, maybe the chemicals are going to react in this certain way. Maybe the stone will crack at a certain point. Maybe I can get, you know, four or five additions off of this, but at a certain point when it cracks or alters or burns in or all these different things, it will have its own say so. And I'm a firm believer that art in general, but music in specific has a lot of say so. You can hear something in the air and you can receive a melody. And then when you go to, to kind of recapitulate that melody, it's gone. It's been elusive. You can drop a needle on a record, hear a rhythm a certain way. You rewind the record to play it again. And it's, it's, it's forever altered because the odd way that the needle decided to play the rhythm is gone. It's just, your ears aren't able to access that previous reality that you once dipped your ladle so full into. And there is so much by by which we try to hold on to these sounds, these kind of memories, these spaces to which we know we'll never live in again. The live show is a perfect example of this as well. You hear something live, it 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 sings perfect because of the where you are in relationship to that sound, both in the physics and in the metaphysics. And then you you know you might listen to a recording of that night, or you might listen to that song um, off of the record, and it just doesn't play you like a bell nearly as well. Correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't that, that could be Saudage. Saudage, Saudage, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, I wanted to know if I, was, if I was pronouncing that correctly. I know Thievery Corporation actually named their album that. Yeah. But there's no equivalent of that word in English. It's not nostalgia. It's not captured by love or melancholy alone. It's this, I think it's kind of what you described, this complex emotional state of longing for what is... <laughs> A, a sense of enthusiasm for the future, which I think everyone's feeling in this pandemic, you know, from the death toll to enduring uncertainty, this period calls to mind a profound sense of loss and longing for what does not exist in the present. You know, the, the present moment is often interrupted by memories of life before the quarantine and the anticipation of post quarantine. So maybe you've been asking yourself, when can I DJ again? When can I teach in a classroom again? When can I headline a festival again? I just think that many of the complexities of today are reflected in that concept, you know, love, loss, hope, all simultaneously. Yeah. And and one of the ways that it even gets more nuanced is oftentimes, especially with the Portuguese version of Saudade, it you know, it has this kind of meaning of longing and loss and and it, it encapsulates a lot of that. But and then when you kind of face it with not only the Portuguese, but the specifically the Brazilian version, the one that occurs in samba music or bossa nova, where the music sounds dancing, it sounds happy, it has this smiling face. But if you start listening to the lyric, it's deeply sad. Aye, but he's following too fast, grumbled Daedalus to himself. He's treading on my heels. And you start to see the happy sad that occurs so much in that music and that culture and how saudade not only means longing in that way, but also the way to which we will face that longing. He cried, I will leave this city. He had not told them about his invention. That, that knowledge that some things are irreparably schismed but we can either move forward kind of bravely with this kind of animation, the smile, this kind of this positivity towards what will come, or we can slump and slouch and be defeated. So you you almost have 
this strange thing that doesn't have a part of the reason doesn't have an equivalent in the English language is because we have a, a, a weird version of nostalgia, I feel like, in the specifically American English speaking world where nostalgia is kind of lifted on these wings. just oftentimes in American arts, we tend to root what was good as something that's been and something that won't ever be again. And therefore it's very hard to move on and move forward um, rather than having a brave face and kind of pushing with smiles, even knowing that we'll never have what was been. And, and how have you approached the, the pandemic? I know you, your, your baby is about seven, eight months, but not being able to tour, have you had more time to dedicate to martial arts, physical activity? How did you approach it? No, I had a deep sense of mourning. I did. I was caught off guard. You know, I think there for like many, it was this kind of when we were being fed the science and the kind of instability of the thing, it was, well, okay, this is going to be going on for a few months, but much like swine flu or bird flu, it won't be so upended. So I had a bunch of gigs previous spring it were pushed a little bit, right? They were given like, okay, they're going to happen in the summertime, like a little tour. Uh, and then I had this record that came out called What Wands Won't Break. And the What Wands Won't Break was like kind of already deeply fed by some some heavier emotions. It was inspired in part by Ross G's passing and some of the introspection I had done following a friend kind of crossing over like that. And um, the record was coming out and I was going to have all these dates. And so they got pushed a little bit, but only a little bit. Right. And so you just kind of like, okay, well, we're just going to like be in this moment and we're going to change the way we're like, in this case, teaching, I was like, we're going to go remote and we're going to just make things work. But the busyness and the kind of nervousness became this distended long period. Obviously we've all been going through. And I just, I feel like if I, I felt like if we'd gotten messaging that this is serious, it's going to go on for months and we're living here now. I, I think I would have done my morning faster, more efficiently. I would have sit sit in Shiva or something, ate a bunch, and maybe come back to my senses. But in the end, it kind of crept up in this way that dates kept on moving. Life for many was made very hard for artists. All almost all the artists I knew, they they struggled, and some of them mentally and physically. And uh, so, a lot of my aspirations towards doing the good work, getting things done, have been largely put on hold until it kind of started to dawn that we might see the other side. So this spring I found myself revitalized, renewed, able to be physical in ways that I had been dormant. And part of it was the kid indeed, like, you know, going through that pregnancy with my partner, us moving forward with this child has been a beautiful, incredibly rewarding endeavor, but it has been hard to find myself as an artist amidst this and especially navigate the pandemic. Part of it is I am, I, I feel like myself an introvert. I don't know if you, know yourself introvert, extrovert, or have some sort of Myers-Briggs recognition of oneself. I, I tend not to do those kind of things, but knowing myself a bit as an introvert, like I don't necessarily need external energy. And yet as my artistic practice, practice had become so wired into this idea of playing shows, getting kind of my lungs, getting full of, of inspiration and air and being able to utter that back when I came home and that had gone forward for so many years 
unaltered, untouched, unasked. Um, I don't think I had really troubled myself with knowing why that that cycle had been. And so losing that that kind of vascular system, that kind of breath uh, made me really unstable for a period of time. But thankfully, dwelling in a cave with my kid and partner has been has been has been really useful for my mental health, but not necessarily great for a lot of other practices. So this spring has been really great to tap back into some of those things. And I, I'm looking forward to shows and there had been some online things that just isn't the same feeling of staring into people's eyes and seeing where they wanted to sway and either swaying with them or giving them something else wise that maybe they didn't know they needed or didn't, I didn't know that I needed. It really is what it comes down to. I'll bring up doom, but I'm not going to bring up accordion like everybody else, <laughs> but I did want to bring up doom because he, he passed a little over eight months yeah. ago. And another fascinating thing I noticed was the world's reaction to his death. All of his albums went back on the Billboard charts. Every rap figure, mainstream and underground posted about him on social media. And then I started really thinking about how death resurgence is really unpredictable. you know. And it might seem morbid, but I, I sit around and I kind of think, well, what if Aphex Twin or James Pants died? What would happen to their album sales? Would they be appreciated too late? I don't know. Death of an artist reaction is always such a weird thing to me. Well, and I think someone, someone like Aphex is well-regarded and kind of beloved and and i feel like they've gotten their flowers a lot james pants is a much more complicated figure who's figured like been strong in terms of their art but largely behind the scenes for a label like stone's throw which is so associated with a single figure like madlib that it's maybe hard for them to have received the kind of accolades that they deserve but and i think in many ways one of the reasons why we like our artists in death more than life is because they can't trouble us anymore with their artistic endeavors or leanings they become fixed figures that we can adore and appreciate for being not so difficult in many ways. And I guarantee you, an, a character like Aphex, who has had some troubling political leanings, has made choices that have been you know, full of cacophony at times in a way that we maybe thrill at, but wouldn't want to be at that show where he played, uh, famously played like sandpaper on the turntables. Can you imagine being DJ after that? Like, right? Like you would be cursing Richard D. James' name. And we love the 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 kind of antics of it, but in death, we won't they'll be simplified. Doom may be the same, um, even though I feel like Doom often leaned into their mythologies in a way that made them a figure that was rife for this kind of adoration. But others, the reason we don't maybe utter their name is because we don't need to, to, to afford them this discordance. We don't have to like right their wrongs or anything. They can just simply uh, cease and their music maybe will remain. But some of these artistic figures that, that have to be reckoned with Death is a simplification. And uh, certainly other art forms have had way more of that. The inflation that's happened in the art world is not un- unlike what's happening in the NFT world where, you know, you have this these artists like people who have been kind of hammering away at, you know, largely politically charged, but kind of unseen, unheard things other than um, being used by like every touring artist ever. Uh, but their name hadn't, you know, been like top line to selling a million dollar, multi-million dollar NFT which is full of its own kind of issues and interests, um, difficulties and dramatics, but it isn't unlike a little death where we won't probably talk their name in the same way because they've been summarized in this one grand moment of, of obtuse (laughs) gluttony. (laughs) Oh yeah. Well, I think when when people, when they, when we hear cryptocurrency and non-fungible tokens, I think those kind of artists, they anticipate a future where we're all just plugged in 24 seven, 
you have 33,000 songs being released a week on streaming and Mm -hmm. Bandcamp Fridays and Tidal and Spotify and Apple and Pandora and Deezer and SoundCloud. And the more I talk to musicians, the more songs I listen, the bigger my playlists grow, the more concerts I go to. You know, can I curate this artfully at scale? Can it be done? Can we make it better than it is now? More social, more elegant, or just more conducive to a healthy society, healthy interactions? You know, we're we're all going to end up like gargoyles in Snow Crash. Maybe I I, I don't know what's what's going to happen. Yeah, I I love that. I mean, I loved Snow Crash, and I think there's some real prescience in what you're saying here. I do think living in the '90s, especially in music culture, being a record collector, scarcity was the enemy the the white label culture people would hide the information hide the knowledge and i felt like it slowed down the arts and now to live in the post scarce realm to be kind of unfettered and free both unlimited play and depreciated values to the point where you know the actual object is is meaningless and the music itself is base baseless and it can be a little frustrating except for the fact that the art itself the importance of art in our lives hasn't gone away at all it just Maybe in some ways we don't have the same numbers attached to it. And I think that's for the best, even though they'd be very hypocritical of me as someone who makes my ends and my living off of art to totally say that without the kind of the caveat of like, well, I feel very, very lucky to have made made this life here. And I am grateful for the people who buy the music, especially directly Bandcamp being one of the best examples and operators in this kind of music world for this purpose. But money doesn't do great things to artists, historically speaking. The kind of ways that hedge funds have gotten into the fine art world, the way that NFTs have created that same kind of space in the music world, the kind of way that the sort of valuation that's happening, if you look at the Bob Dylans or Taylor Swifts who sell their catalogs to, again, to conglomerates or music uh, money, uh, money folded funds, that doesn't seem like it's going to contribute greatly to art forms it's going to create inequities uh, that maybe have some sort of kind of, you know, maybe there's a pot of gold at some end of that rainbow for someone, somehow people more clever than I in terms of in the arts. But I do think that having that stuff in the open, getting that stuff out of the way makes it so that the people who are on the fringe and on the front lines will do great things without having to worry about these numbers bearing down on them. And the art will become more pure and better and lighter and more agile. And I'm all for it. I think that's a perfect segue to talk about what Wands Won't Break because it was released a year. uh, It was released. And then a year later, you came out with uh, physical. The cassette sold out. The vinyl, I think there's about 50. That'll be sold out really soon. And it's it was released in a year where nobody could really dance. And there might be DNA of that 90s electronic LEC. And there might be some Joe Babylon or some Alan Avenisian in there. Who knows? But I think it resonated with people enough to where you caught their attention over a year later to circle back and appreciate that music in a physical medium, which I think is extraordinary. Well, I appreciate that. I mean, one of the things that was fundamental to that record was to make it ungainly loud, make it so shake the floor. Like I really wanted people to play this off their cell phone in a crowded room and have people still be able to move to it. So I did things that are really against the rules in general, I pushed levels and did tricks like kind of sonic tricks to make it insanely loud. And of course, on the streaming services, they have built in limiters that that turn that all that that loudness off effectively. 
and so to be heard on the majority systems, you kind of have to not play the game. And I was never satisfied with that. I, it was always about pushing into the red in a way that, again, people like Ross G taught me sometimes is the only proper volume is too much, is too loud. And to find a way of, of kind of a physical medium like tape does that fairly well. It soaks it in. It becomes a saturation but vinyl usually is pretty allergic to loudness. It, it jumps the needle, as the phrase is. But on 180 gram vinyl, like we did, on direct cut to uh, cut lathe processing, it, although very expensive, <laughs> um, is totally worth it. It made it so that this record now sings in a way that I think very few other record releases could possibly be as loud. Now, of course, this isn't everyone's cup of tea. It's actually like a sinewy beat filled, very little melody kind of exercise. And I totally recognize that it's not, if somebody comes at my music from the brain feeder releases, which are so much about orchestration and kind of really subtle gradient based, sometimes guitar filled um, compositions. It's, this is not that record. Uh, but on this particular vinyl, it, it, it does something that I've never been able to encounter before. And, you know, we're talking, the kind of pressings that are usually reserved for great classic jazz records. Now we've done this with such a, a hellacious collection of tunes. I, I'm so grateful for Dome of Doom for being willing to go on that journey, but it did cost us a year. So you have new music on the way. Is there anything that you can talk about? Yeah. I've been working a lot with this artist, Joshua. Oh gosh. How do you pronounce their last name? It's going to wreck me unless I get it really quick. Um, I'll just leave it as Joshua for now. It, be, uh, uh, BNN City. It was one of the groups that they play with. So we've been making a record together that's awfully beautiful things. I'm not sure exactly when that's going to touch down on the earth, and maybe it won't, just the happenstance of things. But they're based in Sweden currently. They're quite a poet. So it has an MC flair to it, even if they're not um, purely singing or purely rapping. It's just this kind of middle place that speaks to a lot of nowness um, that might evolve. But I love the collaborative spirit. Some some remixes, I, I did a string quartet that's coming out on an, uh, a group called Attica Quartet, who won some Grammys a period of time ago. They commissioned a record full of people like Amon Tobin, Flying Lotus, Toki Monster, myself, and others, um, formerly A Tribe Called Red, now Hallucination. Um, we've all contributed music. Some of it's reinterpretations by the Attica Quartet, some of it's original work like mine that is just flexing different muscles that has long gone dormant in me. And that I, you know, something about the pandemic allowed for some of these things to bloom. And then finally some like deeply personal music was also bubbling up right now, but as per everything, who knows what the future holds. I'm just grateful to be still in this conversation, grateful to have this conversation with you today. And indeed the kind of topics that you've forced me to think about uh, a little bit more um, will give me some clarity so that I can hopefully make good choices and get, more music out soon that reflects that i hope oh my god that's the best compliment i've ever i've ever got i, I know you've done countless interviews so i'm hoping i'm in the top 10 percent of the classroom here <laughs> i feel it i feel like you've done your homework and uh you deserve straight a's but it also is the kind of thing too where i um i'm inspired by the work you've done with others in terms of the, the great amount of questions you've asked and yet at the same time i feel like you you kind of ask the same question a lot um, to these different producers and you get different results. But I just like the fact that you have found a through thread in a lot of your interviews that I feel like um, not only am I inspired by, but also 
I do feel like one of the major lacks in our current environment, you know, we have these kind of endless streams of output, but very little critique, very little like taking a pause moment to reflect on what it is to um, imbibe and what it is to listen. And those are skills that are way more important now um, than ever before. I'm, I feel the same way. I'm glad you do too. And uh, it was an honor to host you. And I hope you had fun, man. Thank you so much for being here. My absolute pleasure. Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.